0: Dearly loved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Uh, one area of life that is often tricky to navigate is the area of relationships. Relationships are not always easy, to be sure. This is true for almost every relationship in life. It includes relationships between husbands and wife, or husband and wife, relationships between siblings, relationships between classmates relationships with coworkers, relationships with family members and extended family relationships with brothers and sisters in the lord jesus christ in the church now when you take stock of all the relationships that you have in your life i want to ask this morning what do you see do you see relationships of peace and harmony or do you see relationships of friction and strife, disunity? And What our text this morning is showing us is that the health of our relationships is often determined by the type of wisdom we live by. See, this passage here from James 3 and James 4 describes two types of wisdom. One type of wisdom is the natural wisdom of our fallen human hearts. It's a wisdom described here as earthly wisdom, wisdom from below. And living by this type of wisdom results in relationships of fighting and disunity. The other type of wisdom described here is a wisdom from God. It's a heavenly wisdom, a wisdom that comes down from above, from God's Word. And living by this wisdom results in relationships of peace. Now, one thing our text also is stressing for us this morning is that this is true not just with human relationships. Human relationships are not the only thing affected by this. The type of wisdom we live by also determines the health of our relationship with the Lord. And so I preach you God's Word this morning uh, under the following theme. The type of wisdom we live by determines the health of our relationships with people and with God. We have two uh, points we're going to look at in connection with that theme. First of all, we're going to look at wisdom from below. That's wisdom in quotation marks and relationships of strife. And then wisdom from above and relationships of peace. Now, there are some things in this world that are a sad substitute for the real thing. They're advertised as good alternatives, but they fall far short. I think of things like meatless burgers, powdered coffee creamers, things like that. They just don't cut it. But what is true for things, say, in the food industry, is likewise true for some spiritual matters. Take, for example, the matter of wisdom. There are many things in this world that are selling themselves as wisdom. The reality is, however, they're nothing but snake oil. They're advertised as a good way of life, but they only bring someone down a path of foolishness. So, declared to be wise, but end up being the way of foolishness. And one type of wisdom described in our our text is like that. It's a wisdom found naturally in our hearts. It's a wisdom contrary to the truth, and so is not wisdom at all. And you can hear it described in verses 14 and 15. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and even demonic. Notice how this wisdom is centered on the self. Here it describes of uh, A wisdom being one of selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is all about the promotion of self. It's built on human pride. It's all about trying to make oneself great. It's about gaining more, more money, more power, more fame, all for the sake of me, myself, and I. And similar things can be said for bitter jealousy. Now, we might think this would be different because bitter jealousy, jealousy is an attitude toward other people. But why does it arise? It too arises because of a focus on self. A person looks at what he or she wants, sees that others have the object of desire, and then harbors in his or her heart feelings of resentment, bitterness, And discontent. And these two things so often, selfish ambition, bitter jealousy, this is the wisdom that drives our world. Things like bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are the gasoline in so many people's engines as they go through life. And it can arise so easily from our hearts too. And why is it so seductive? Well, because it appeals to our sinful desires, and through our fallen nature, we are naturally focused on ourselves. Furthermore, living this way seems to get you ahead of the game. You know, from time to time on the internet, I come across maybe some certain memes or sayings that describe this, this sort of attitude. Uh, Just listen to this piece of advice I came across. You become unstoppable the moment you start believing in yourself. Ouch. Or how about this one? When you start seeing your own worth, you'll find it harder to stay around people who don't. That's terrible. What about this one? You'll be amazed at what you attract if you start believing in what you deserve. Some people think these are words to live by. In fact, they thought they were so wise they were worth sharing with the entire world. Let's live like this, everyone. Can you see it? It's all about the promotion of self. It's about making yourself number one in your world to get ahead of everyone else. Now, having said that, we must take care. We must not think such wisdom is only found on internet memes. This is a wisdom found naturally in here, in our hearts. We are born with a heart that puts us at the center of life. And this attitude, maybe unspoken, can drive us every day as we go about our daily lives. We can rear its head as we go to work, as we raise a family, attend university, pursue a career, build a business, plan our finances, you name it. We can make these activities in life all about self and the promotion of self. One main problem with this worldly wisdom, as we see here from this text, is that it's so destructive. Yes, a person might gain a lot by living on selfish ambition— but it wreaks havoc on relationships. Listen only to verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So how strongly it puts it, every vile practice. You see, if you nurse something like jealousy in your heart, it's going to present, uh, produce resentment and even hatred towards other people. And this will lead only to other hurtful and destructive behaviors, things like unfriendliness, shunning, slander, hurtful words, personal attacks, and just plain meanness. How much junk on social media is not driven by bitter jealousy? Similar things can be said for selfish ambition. When you put yourself at the center of your world, the world around you will suffer. That's because if your personal goals and glory matter more to you than your neighbor's well-being, you're going to end up running roughshod over other people for your own personal gain. And hurting others won't really matter as long as self and its desires are satisfied. And with this mindset... People become objects to use or roadblocks to remove rather than persons to love. And this type of attitude hurts not only the world out there, it can hurt the local church just as much. Just look at what he says in chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. See covetous desires they go hand in hand with bitter jealousy and and selfish ambition. And and the Spirit says for James, these desires, they, they will cause quarrels and fights also in the church. And it's these desires that so often are at the root of our strife with other people. You know, when we experience friction in our relationships, so often we want to point the finger outward to other people well, I did this to them because of what they have done or because of how they're acting or what they said, you name it. The other person is the reason I'm fighting. Scripture often says, actually, the problem so often lies in here with the sinful desires that that are at war within your soul. And look at the effects As he says here in chapter 4, he goes on to say, You desire and do not have, so you murder. Now, it's unlikely, I really hope it's unlikely, that the people James was writing to were, were actually murdering each other, physically murdering each other. But Scripture does give some grim examples of how things like envy and coveting does, in fact, lead to physical murder. Just think of King Ahab murdering Naboth to get his vineyard. Just think of David murdering Uriah so that he could take Bathsheba for himself. And similar things can happen in our own hearts. If you covet someone's possessions, thoughts of theft may very well follow. If you're jealous of someone else's body or talents, That jealousy will produce resentment and strife. If you covet someone else's spouse, thoughts of people dying so that you can have said spouse will not be hard to imagine. Can you see how destructive these desires can be? Especially if left unchecked, they will grow. The worst thing is, this type of wisdom corrodes our relationship with the Lord. It hinders fellowship with our Heavenly Father. It breaks down our loyalty to the one who deserves to be number one in our life always. And the first way our text says it does this is it can negatively affect our prayers. See, prayer is meant to be a beautiful expression of our relationship with the one true God. It's meant to be a means through which our Father in Heaven graciously provides us with everything we need in life so that we might serve Him in joy. But living by this worldly wisdom twists this beautiful purpose of prayer. It treats God, or tries to treat Him, like some kind of cosmic vending machine, so that you can just get what you want, where you put in the coins of prayer, you press the button of specific desires, and soon afterwards you hope your gift falls from the sky. All for you. This is how chapter 4 puts it. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. But you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly or even wickedly, as it says, to spend it on your passions. Right? So these types of desires will negatively affect our prayers. And As we see here, the Lord does not take this sort of covetousness lightly. And the, the Holy Spirit, through James, responds with such strong words of rebuke, saying, you, you adulterous people. And literally, he says, you adulteresses. Now, why why does he put it like that in the the feminine? Is he only addressing the women of the church? Well, no, far from it. Rather, he's using language that reminds the church that we are the bride of Christ. And as the bride of Christ, we are to remain faithful to our husband, our Lord pursuing these covetous desires and living by this worldly wisdom is to commit spiritual adultery this is so often how the old so often how the old testament prophets spoke to israel one classic example is the prophet hosea The Lord spoke to him in chapter 1, verse 2, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. You know, so often in our hearts we think we can have it both ways. That we can serve the Lord and we can serve other gods. That we can live by the wisdom of God and by the world's wisdom. But Scripture won't allow us to go there. And this text won't allow us to go there either. It says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Just think of it in terms of a husband and wife relationship again if a husband or a wife says to their spouse, well, I want to be married to you, but I also want to have this relationship with this other person at the same time. What husband or wife is going to tolerate that? I, I certainly hope none. It's the same thing with the Lord. He's jealous over the affections of his people. And although verse 5 is difficult to translate, you get the sense of this when it says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. The Lord yearns uh, yearns jealously over the love of His people. Now, if our text ended here, and if the sermon ended here, we might all go away from here this morning somewhat dejected. Uh, We might think there's no hope and just give up. But thankfully, the text does not end there. And right after giving that stinging rebuke, verse 6 provides these welcome words, but God gives more grace. We're going to look at this more as we go into our second point. So It says, God gives more grace. He gives more grace in the sense that He does not cast us off in our sin and in our unfaithfulness, He gives more grace in the sense that his grace is greater than our sin and that this grace gives us what we need to overcome these sins and to heal and to renew our relationship with the Lord again. And one way this happens is through following the path of heavenly wisdom. In contrast to the earthly wisdom, which is unspiritual and even demonic, there's a wisdom from above coming from God. And unsurprisingly, these two types of wisdom, they form complete opposites. The wisdom from below is built on selfish ambition. The Wisdom from above is built on humility. You see it right there at the beginning of our text in chapter 3. Who is wise in understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in meekness, or humility of wisdom. It's built on humility. And chapter 4 then goes on to show how this greater grace of God is also connected with humility. What's the wise response when we fall into these sins of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition and covetousness? It's to humble ourselves before the Lord. As James writes here, quoting from the book of Proverbs, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to them. And then what's left for us to do but to humble ourselves before the Lord? And this is how our text describes that. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Well, that's quite the description. And when we read those words, I want to ask, what do you think about that? maybe we're beyond that type of sorrow for sin or that this sort of humility is perhaps outdated but with these words here god calls us to see how serious these sins are and what an appropriate response looks like for our unfaithfulness and humbling ourselves in this way also leads to refreshment and joy And a renewed sense of God's favor. God exalts the humble, he says. Gives grace to them. In our relationship with the Lord, those who humble themselves will be exalted. And this is the constant pattern in Scripture. Think of David when he sinned uh, with the matter of Bathsheba. He humbled himself and was forgiven. King Manasseh humbled himself greatly after an entire life of sin and rebellion. He was exalted by God. And if you humble yourself before the Lord, you likewise will be forgiven and raised up by Him. That's true because of Jesus Christ. You see, the Lord Jesus is wisdom personified. He's wisdom in the flesh. He is the wisdom that came down from above. He walked in the way of wisdom His entire life. And that wisdom displayed itself in a life of complete humility before God. No, did Christ ever live by selfish ambition? Not even close. He had not one drop of selfish ambition in his heart. God was at the center of his life every single moment. God's glory was his heart's desire 24-7, His neighbor's well-being was at the forefront of his mind. Because that was true, he humbled himself so much. He obeyed the Father even to the point of dying the most horrific death, a death on a cross to pay for all of our sins. Even taking God's just wrath upon himself so that you would be saved. It's through that saving work that we are forgiven and exalted. Christ is the wisdom of God on full display. It's through that life of wisdom that he is our righteousness. It's through that saving work that we are justified by his grace, as we read in Titus 3. It's through his exaltation that we are exalted with him, raised up with Christ, seated with him in heaven at God's right hand. It's through that that we are also changed to be more like him. In Christ Jesus, and by the Spirit, we take on this heavenly wisdom more and more. And this is how that wisdom is described for us in this text. The wisdom from above is, first of all, pure, it's not mixed with sin. There's no hidden selfish agenda in our actions, there's no evil purposes staining our words. And this alone will lead to better human relationships. This will help to bring about relationships of peace. This wisdom is also described as peaceable. It aims for peace without sacrificing truth or purity, but it aims for peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God, says the Lord Jesus. Or, as Ephesians 4 says, keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Right? The true wisdom from God, from above, never delights in fighting and disu- disunity. It always seeks to bring about reconciliation and healing where there is strife. This wisdom is, thirdly, described as gentle. Gentleness here is a matter of being kind and forbearing with others. It doesn't respond with harshness, even when correction is needed. Titus 3 uses uses the same word when it says, remind them to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and and to show perfect courtesy to all people. This wisdom is next described as open to reason. It gives other people the opportunity to speak their thoughts and to be heard. It doesn't right away shut someone down or treat them as ignorant. And this quality means you don't proudly believe that you know it all. So you're willing to hear what others have to say. And people who don't have this quality believe in their own minds that they are always right. And this wisdom from above is also full of mercy and good fruits, it says. God is full of mercy to us. He showed that in Christ. And growing in this wisdom means growing more like Him, growing in mercy. It means willing to forgive even when you've been wronged. And we do this knowing that God in Christ has forgiven us. The wisdom from above is finally described as impartial and sincere. While the wisdom is merciful, it's not the same as letting certain people off the hook only because you like them better than others or having to gain something for yourself. When you are impartial, every person gets a fair hearing, every person gets treated in a just manner. And when you're sincere, You don't speak with your fingers crossed behind your back, but your words can be trusted. Well, this is how our text describes heavenly wisdom. And can you see, is it any wonder that living by this wisdom leads to relationships of peace and harmony? Wouldn't you want to be around someone who takes on these qualities more and more? And if you put this wisdom to practice in your own life, it's going to only benefit your relationships. When all the members of the church aim for this wisdom, it will cause the body of Christ to grow closer together in love and unity. When husband and wife live by this wisdom, put it into practice. Their marriage will likewise grow in unity and love. When classmates live by this wisdom, schools will become places of harmony and peace. If coworkers implemented this type of wisdom, how much better workplaces would be? God is a God of order and peace. He wants us to reflect that in our lives and even to enjoy it. As verse 18 says, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Amen.